Today, we're looking at what Jesus says makes his followers distinctive, what sets them apart. What is it that Jesus asks of us that makes us distinctive? And once you see what makes us distinctive, you see it all the time. It sets us apart. It shows us to be followers of Christ. Now, we've been going through John's Gospel over the last few weeks. Uh, Since John chapter 13, Jesus has been speaking with his disciples Not to the crowds, not to others, but directly to his followers. It's the night before Jesus' death. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows Judas has left them to portray Jesus to the authorities. But still, Jesus has been encouraging his disciples, knowing what is about to happen, urging them not to be discouraged, urging them to serve, urging them to know peace, the peace that only God can bring. And in today's passage, Jesus continues speaking with his disciples. Knowing the painful death that awaits, Jesus urges his disciples to look at what should set them apart, what should make them distinctive. And I'm going to use three points that will hopefully be helpful for us to follow. So to understand what it is to be a distinctive Christian, we need to know who Jesus is, who you are in Jesus, and how to love in Jesus. Know who Jesus is, know who you are in Jesus, and know how to love in Jesus. So let's start with the first point. Know who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is very clear in verse 1 about noting who he is. I am the true vine. In using the words, I am, Jesus makes a definitive statement. Jesus wants no ambiguity about who he says he is. Jesus is making a clear revelation about his identity and is wanting his disciples to understand clearly who he says he is. The disciples would have understood the significance of Jesus stating, I am. In Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses and when Moses asked what his name was, he said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And this is also not the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has made the definitive statement, I am, when talking about himself. In reading through the Gospel of John, you may have noticed that there are actually six other times, six significant times, where Jesus has used this same definitive statement of, I am. In John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the gate. John 10 again, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. See, through the book of John, Jesus is continually discussing his role, who he is, and why he has come. Jesus has come to save, to give life, to guide. But he's also been very clear about his relationship with the God, the Father. Remember in last week, John 14, Jesus has already been discussing the intimate relationship between the Father and himself. Uh, John 14, you will realise that I am in my Father. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them. 
And we hear today in John 15 that Jesus furthers the understanding of his relationship with the Father in the imagery of the vine by saying in verse 1, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Although the role of Jesus is central in understanding this passage, it's vital that you see that the Father is not merely a background watcher. He's not silent or inactive. No, God, following the metaphor of the vine and the gardener, is trimming and pruning. He's active in lives and intimately connected to the Son, Jesus. It is God who is at work. Now, Jesus was not introducing a new idea by using the metaphor of a vine and branches. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are multiple times where Israel, God's promised people, are referred to as the vine. Uh, God used Israel to accomplish his purpose in the world, and he blessed those connected with them. He was the vine dresser. He cared for the vine. He trimmed it and cut off branches that did not bear fruit. But there was a problem with this vine. Throughout the Old Testament, the vine degenerated and bore no fruit. The vine dresser grieved over the tragedy of Israel's fruitlessness. Uh, Carson, in his commentary on John, notes that whenever historical Israel is referred to in the Old Testament as being a vine, it's the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasised, along with God's judgement on the nation. An example of one of those passages, which uh, Sean read earlier, is from Isaiah 5, and it notes this. Uh, and sorry, it's a bit small up there. Uh, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it to waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God had done everything he needed to do to make Israel bear fruit. Yet, due to their persistent sin, it bore none. So he took away its walls and left it unprotected. It was then trampled down by foreign nations and laid to waste. Let's think about a vineyard here for a minute. In fact, let's think about the owner of a vineyard. The owner plants a vine. They put the vine in the best possible soil. They provide the vine with the appropriate nutrients. They nurture the plant. They prune with the best care that they can. But despite the best possible care, the vine produces no fruit year after year. What will the owner do? Will they continue to put the resources into this vine? No. In reality, the owner will pull the unproductive plant out. And God does the same. Israel is removed from the promised land. Jesus is saying to his disciples that now there is a new vine. And not just any vine. Jesus is the true vine. Psalm 80, which is another passage about Israel uh, being a vine but failing, actually points to the Son of Man being raised up for yourself. Now in Scripture, the word true is often used to describe what is eternal, heavenly or divine. Israel was imperfect. Israel repeatedly failed. But Christ is perfect. Christ is the perfect fulfilment of God's promises. 
No longer does blessing come through a covenantal relationship with Israel. Fruit and blessing come through intimate connection with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true vine. And the Father is the gardener. Uh, You'll notice in verse 2 that God cuts off those branches that bear no fruit and prunes the ones that do. Just like the owner I mentioned earlier who doesn't want unproductive vines, they also don't want dead branches. If a gardener can prune or remove the fruitless part of the branches to get more fruit, then that's what they'll do. You see, God doesn't promise that once you're connected to Jesus that he will leave you be that you can just continue to go on in your own direction. He prunes, he shapes, he guides. And how does he do this? Well, Jesus points this out to us in that we need to know, as his followers, who we are in him. And this is point two. We need to know who you are in Jesus. Uh, From verse four, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In thinking about who we are in him, Jesus uses very specific language. He says, remain in me, or in the ESV, uses the phrase, abide in me. In fact, it's such an important point that Jesus focuses very clearly on the idea of remaining in him. First, what does our Lord mean by remain in him? So the word remain usually means to continue or stay in a place or in a condition. Uh, So I might, for example, say I abide at 7 Beatrix Street in Greensboro. Um, No drive-bys or anything like that, please. (laughs) Anyway, Um, but Jesus actually uses his words as something very different here. Here, Jesus uses this word to refer to abiding in a person not a place. He says, abide in me. What does this mean? How do we remain or abide in a person? Uh, At first glance, this idea seems maybe a bit too mystical or existential for us to get an understanding on it. But Jesus uses the imagery to illustrate his meaning. And this imagery, which is the vital union of a vine and its branches, suggests that he's urging his disciples to maintain a similar vital relationship with himself. By remain in me, it means we have a living connection with Jesus. We are, as followers of Christ, intimately connected to the vine. Now, from all that we know from the Bible's larger teaching about the Christian life, we can only conclude that the Lord has in mind a vigorous energetic activity on our own part by which we maintain living contact with him. So here, while we may be tempted to read the word abide in a static sort of way, that would be to miss uh, Jesus' meaning together altogether. Uh, Jesus is using the word abide as a very dynamic, active word. Abiding in Christ involves 
intimate communion that is being connected to the vine by faith, which leads to energetic perseverance, which is bearing fruit. Abiding in Christ involves intimate communion, which leads to energetic perseverance. In order to be fruitful in the Christian life, we need living, strength-giving, fruit-nurturing, intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. We need to read our Bibles regularly to understand what God wants for us in our lives. We need to challenge ourselves and our attitudes to make choices in godly wisdom. We need to be drawing sap from the true vine. And how do we do this? Well, a simple way to start would be to read your Bible, get into God's word, hear from God about his plan, his promises, his truths. And not only read his word, but pray, speak with God, the living God, talk to the one who gives life. Come to church each week, be challenged by what God calls us to do. But whatever you do, keep coming back to Jesus. Let's have a think. How are you going with that? I mean, really going with that. I know at times I struggle to read my Bible. Uh, I forget to pray. I try to do things on my own or I get too busy. Uh, Jesus, God's own son, our Lord and Saviour, wants you to be connected with him. He wants you to keep coming back and drawing your strength from God and his living word, his truths. Don't try to do things in your own strength. Be challenged by what God says in his word. Go back to it and be prepared to be shaped and pruned to be more like Christ. You see, there are many who call themselves Christians, yet fail to depend on Christ. Instead of being attached to the true vine, they're tied to a bank account. Others are attached to their education. Some have tried to make vines out of popularity or work, personal skills or attributes, possessions, relationships or other desires. Some actually think the church is their vine and try to attach themselves to a religious system or a place. But none of these things can sustain or bear fruit. These are the things God wants to prune, wants to remove. The only vine that can produce lasting fruit is Christ. And Jesus has a very clear warning for those who don't remain in him, the vine. This is from verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. There's a clear warning here, isn't there? You're either with Jesus or cut off, severed, removed. Saying you're a Christian but not having Christ you can do nothing. And if you think through the analogy of the vine and the gardener, the branches are not just cut off, they're taken away and burned. Burned. And yes, there is a warning here, isn't there? But the great thing is there's also promise. You see, the warning is that without Christ, you can do nothing. But the promise is clear. In fact, there are two promises. The first is Jesus will not leave you, 
So in verses 5 and 7, it says Jesus emphasizes that he will remain in us. Jesus is with us. That's the first promise. And the second promise from verses 10 and 11, not only is Jesus with us, but he gives us joy, complete joy. Now, joy isn't like getting a new television or a toy or a car or something material. Those sort of joy fades, doesn't it? The joy Jesus offers is a lasting joy, a lasting hope, an eternal joy that never fades. But if we remain in Christ, the question is, what is this fruitfulness? Uh, When we speak in church of fruitfulness or bearing fruit, I generally tend to think towards the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5. Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And they are definitely fruits that we want to encourage. But I think when we read through what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, he's focusing in relation to one particular fruit. Jesus is focusing his disciples, his followers, towards one particular expression or fruit that will set them apart, one that will make them distinctive. Love. A distinctive love that is in Jesus and through Jesus. And that brings us to our third point. Know how to love in Jesus. By staying attached to Jesus, we learn how to love in or how to love like Jesus. Uh, John 15 from verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And from verse 17, this is my command, love one another. And if we look back a few chapters to John 13, Jesus gives a very similar expression about love that he gives in today's passage. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is very clear. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is to be a very distinctive characteristic that sets us apart. How we love our fellow Christians will be seen and known. Loving others encourages, loving others lifts them up. And what does this look like in practical terms? There are many different examples of love. Uh, You might be able to start after church even today by just chatting with someone you haven't spoken to before or encourage someone in their walk with Christ. Uh, We might be a big church in terms of numbers, but that doesn't mean that there are not people here who might be lonely. You might seek someone out who might be on their own and have a chat, but be interested, care. Uh, I've felt loved through the last couple of years by someone who probably doesn't even know how encouraging it is. Uh, There have been times where our family haven't been at church because of various things, uh, but one friend sends me a text every so often. Uh, Let me read a couple. Missed you guys at church last week. Or another, missed your smiling faces at church today. Hope you guys are okay. Again, this can be easy for some to do, but hard for others. 
but checking on someone you missed at church can be so encouraging, can't it? Noticing others when they are there and noticing others when they're not there. That's love. You might aim to get to church early each week to chat with new people as they come through the door, welcoming them. You might offer to make a meal for someone that's struggling with sickness or time constraints or have a family or single people over for church for lunch or for a meal. But share, invite, care, ask, listen, love. These things can be hard and they take time. They might push you outside of your comfort zone. But love, sacrificial love, is what we're called to do. Love is what Jesus is calling us to do to be distinctive. Now, don't mistake me and say that we're called to love our Christian, and brothers, Christian brothers and sisters only. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus is very clear in other parts of the Gospels that we're to love our neighbours as ourselves and our neighbours being everyone. But loving each other in Christ, our fellow brothers and sisters, that is what makes us a distinctive community. That is what helps each other grow. That's what Jesus wants his followers to be known as. Loving each other with a focus, a specific love. You see, Jesus asks us to love each other in a specific way. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Even though Jesus has been very clear about what's going to happen to him, I don't think the disciples really understood the full meaning of what or how Jesus was asking them to love. Uh, Jesus knew he was about to go to the cross. Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus knew he was going to lay down his life. Jesus laid down his life so that they, the disciples, might have life. So that his followers, connected to the vine, might have life. The greatest love ever shown was God sending his son to take the punishment we deserve, to die the death we deserve, to take the punishment for our sins, not because we earned being saved, not because of anything we've done, but because he loves us, because he wants us to be with him. Jesus commands us to love each other with a sacrificial love, a love that takes time, a love that isn't always easy, but a love that marks us for who he wants us to be in him. Uh, you might have heard the story of the Australian author Tim Winton. When he was very young, his father, a motorcycle policeman, was nearly killed after a drunk driver ran through a stop sign and collided with him. Uh, when his father, John, was eventually brought home from hospital, he was a wreck. He'd gone from being the family's sole breadwinner to being bedridden, unable to move or shower himself. It was up to his wife, Bev, to manage the house and cope with four children, four very young children. A week or so after John came home, a stranger showed up on their doorstep. Uh, his name was Len Thomas. Uh, he'd said he'd heard about the accident and that Bev was having a tough time and that he wanted to help. Winton said of the experience, we'd never met this guy before. And here he was, turning up, unannounced and uninvited, offering to give us a hand. 
Almost every day for the next few weeks, Thomas came to the house where he carried John, Winton's father, from his bedroom to the bathroom and washed him. Then Thomas was a Christian, a man who'd heard Jesus' call to love. He loved the Winton family as Jesus had called him to do, to love our neighbours. But you see, the interesting point's this. So if you follow the story of the Winton family further, through this sacrificial act of love, they started attending Len Thomas's church. And if you follow what Winton says about his lasting impressions from that church, he says this. The church community was incredibly unifying and nurturing. Your life had meaning and you belonged. And you had this amazing connection with people who weren't blood relatives, but who treated you like family, who loved you, not because of anything else other than the need to love. Isn't that what Jesus calls us to do? Love each other? Not just that sort of like, how are you type love, but the real sort of, how are you type love. The one that cares and takes time to listen. The one that shines brighter than any golden arches ever will. The type of love that screams from the rooftops, we love because Jesus first loved us. What will that look like for you? We love because Jesus wants love, sacrificial love, to be the symbol, the distinctive of his people, of his church, of you. The type of love that draws people to him, to the one true vine. Love because you know who Jesus is. Love because you know who you are in Jesus. Love because Jesus commands us to love one another. Love one another in Christ because he gave his life so that you might have life. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God, help us to stay connected to you. The, we, uh, to Jesus, the true vine, uh, trusting in him, trusting that he gives life, true life, everlasting life, and help us, your people, love, love each other, love others, love others knowing that Christ first us loved us, and we pray that love, the love of Christ, draws people to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.